Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman. We have a lot to discuss today, but before we do, we'd like to begin in prayer, and so we'll be praying Psalm 51. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have mercy on me, God, in your kindness, in your compassion, blot out my offense. O wash me more and more from my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. My offenses truly I know them. My sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned. What is evil in your sight I have done? That you may be justified when you give sentence, and be without reproach when you judge. O see, in guilt I was born, a sinner was I conceived. Indeed you love truth in the heart. Then in the secret of my heart teach me wisdom. O purify me, then I shall be clean. O wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear rejoicing and gladness, that the bones you have crushed may revive. From my sins turn away your face, and blot out all my guilt. A pure heart create for me, O God. Put a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, nor deprive me of your Holy Spirit. Give me again the joy of your help. With a spirit of fervor sustain me, that I may teach transgressors your ways, and sinners may return to you. O rescue me, God, my helper, and my tongue shall ring out your goodness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. For in sacrifice you take no delight. Burnt offering from me you would refuse. My sacrifice a contrite spirit, a humbled contrite heart you will not spurn. In your goodness show favor to Zion. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with lawful sacrifice, holocausts offered on your altar. And now let us pray together. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode of Truth in Charity, Bishop Kevin Rhodes talks about the Catholic Community Foundation of Northeast Indiana, an organization dedicated to establishing endowment funds that support parishes, schools, and other ministries in the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese for years to come. Then it's on to the Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults, or RCIA, as the elect make their final preparations for initiation into the Catholic Church during the Easter Vigil. Afterwards, Bishop talks about the diocesan-wide reconciliation service called The Light is On For You, a special Lenten event in which every parish in the diocese will be open for reconciliation on Wednesday, February 28th from 6 to 8 p.m. The show wraps up with Bishop answering questions from listeners. You can submit your question for a future show by going to RedeemerRadio.com askbishop or download the Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and submit your question there. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we've got a lot to talk about today. Thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to be with us. You're welcome, Kyle. Always great to be here. One of the things that we want to talk about is a foundation that... I don't know how I wasn't really aware of this. It's been around for a long time. The Catholic Community Foundation of Northeast Indiana. How did this get started? Well, this got started back in 1994, and it's basically a foundation 
that has endowment funds that support the spiritual and the educational and charitable institutions of the church in our diocese. So we have many parishes and schools and other ministries that have these uh, endowments, which, you know, are, are really important for the future. And Bishop Darcy was very farsighted in establishing this. It's called the Catholic Community Foundation of Northeast Indiana. And it's really grown through the years. It presently has, I think, close to $50 million in assets and about 150 accounts. And many of them have, are named for the, the people who donated to the fund or established a fund. And this is really helpful. For example, some of our schools have these endowments. Now, it's nowhere close to the endowments that you see in universities and colleges, but it'd be wonderful if we could build the endowments, especially in our schools, so that we don't always have to be raising tuition so much. But also parishes. Can you explain how an endowment works? Yes, an endowment is, now I'm not a finance guy, but basically you don't touch the principal, but the interest is used and distributed for the purpose that it's been designated. For example, the income from the funds might be used for operational expenses or for capital improvements, Mm -hmm. or if it's an endowment for a school, sometimes it's for tuition assistance or maybe capital improvements at the school. I mean, there's a lot of flexibility on how one may want to uh, establish the endowment. We really have, I mean, as I said, about 150. And some have just a small amount of money in them. Some, the amount is, is quite significant. And so it's a really good way for people to support the church for the future. I would say also, especially when people are make, doing their estate planning, you know, mm-hmm. uh, preparing bequests and that, to remember their parish or their school or the diocese in their estate planning. It's a wonderful way to kind of leave a legacy, I would say. One of the endowments that that I established since coming to the diocese is the St. John Paul II Fund for Seminary and Education. Yeah. You know, this is a big item on our annual budget of the diocese Mm -hmm. because we have a good number of seminarians. So to be able to have an endowment, this helps provide for the education of our future priests. So I've been kind of promoting gifts for for that fund. Again, it's the St. John Paul II Fund for Seminary and Education. I would hope that that would grow quite a bit because that would be what a wonderful legacy to leave some of one's estate to to help in the education of future priests. Yeah. And as opposed to a one-time donation that would be exhausted as soon as it's used. This is something that when you're not touching the principal, you're just using the interest generated. So this could go on for years and years and years to continue to support whatever ministry you really feel passionate about. Exactly. You know, and I, years ago when my mother died, she died in 1994. Mm -hmm. She had worked for many years at St. Mary's School in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. So St. Mary's School is now part of what's called Lebanon Catholic School, which is a K through 12 institution. So I set up an endowment in her memory. Hmm. And uh, and it's grown quite a bit since then. And other people have also given to that fund, and I have. And it's just a wonderful way to memorialize my mother, who gave so much of her life to that school. So that's also a way to... Um, 
to remember loved ones. You could also have an endowment named in their honor, like I did in in honor of my mother. And the foundation has always existed as a separate 501c3 nonprofit, separate from the diocese. But recently, some changes were made to make that separation even more uh, more extreme. Well, it's really important that we have a, I mean, it's a Catholic foundation. So as bishop, I am the sole corporate member of the corporation. So I think that's important because of the Catholic nature of the foundation. Okay. But we have now a board of directors. Formerly, there were three directors, I believe, and now we have a, what had been a board of advisors we have now made into a board of directors, which will give them more responsibility for the operation of the foundation, Mm -hmm. which I think is really important that we have people with expertise, lay people especially, but there are some priests, directors as well, and also the, uh, the vicar general of the diocese and the chief financial officer of the diocese are uh, ex officio members of the board. But what is most significant, I think, in the new revision of the bylaws is that we've hired a a CEO of the foundation. Uh Because before, it was under our own diocesan secretariat for stewardship and development. But we really didn't have the staffing to be able to really promote and market the endowments as much as we'd like. So the board really felt that it would be good to have a full-time director whose responsibility is to uh, to help grow these endowments. Mm-hmm. So that, I would say, is the most significant change that occurred recently. And I'm really hopeful that with this change, we can uh, grow these endowments so that um, we're able to do all of our our ministries and uh, our different apostolates and and people can look on and and see what are the endowments that we presently have uh-huh. um, you know as I said there's almost 150 a lot of parishes have endowments a lot of our schools have endowments but some don't and some have very uh, small amounts mm-hmm. in them but there are some that are larger we have our four Catholic high schools, one of our wonderful Catholics, William Newell, there's an endowment fund named for him at each of our four high schools, Bishop Hmm. Dwenger, Bishop Lures, Marion, and St. Joseph's. And these endowments, which are about, I think about a million dollars each, fund support for tuition assistance for needy students at our high schools. So there are disbursements every year, again, from the interest, not from the principal, which really enables us to help a lot of needy families so that there are students who are able to attend our Catholic high schools who perhaps otherwise wouldn't have had the tuition assistance that they're need that's needed. And Bishop Darcy was really responsible for all of that. As a matter of fact, Bishop Darcy established scholarship funds at our four high schools that are in addition to the William Newell funds. And uh, his scholarship funds, if I'm not mistaken, I think when he celebrated his golden jubilee as a priest, Bishop Darcy asked that any gifts that would be given to him on that occasion would go for these scholarship funds in our high schools. Sure. 
Well, in addition to schools and parishes, my understanding is that this is also starting to expand into other ministries that are happening independent of the diocese, but within the diocese, uh, and including a potential that uh, an organization like Redeemer Radio could be supported by this foundation. Yes, I mean, it would be Catholic organizations. For example, there are endowment funds already for the St. Vincent de Paul Society Mm -hmm. and for Hannah's House, which is a Christian maternity home up in Mishawaka. There's an endowment for Catholic charities. There's even an endowment for some of our parish cemeteries Mm -hmm. uh, to support the care and maintenance of the cemeteries. So these are all very good things. If someone wants to set up an endowment, we would always uh, check to make sure it fits with the mission Mm -hmm. of the Catholic Community Foundation. There's also an endowment for St. Anne's Home. You know, there are a few endowments that were named for some of our deceased priests in, in their honor, and actually some living priests as well. So there's all kinds of opportunities. And our new CEO, if anyone's interested, they can just contact our new CEO, Michael Shade, who's a parishioner at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Parish in Fort Wayne. He began his work as CEO on December 1st, and um, they can just contact him for more information. Okay. And they can do that through calling the diocese? Correct. At 260-422-4611? That's right. They can check the diocese website as well. And uh, also, there's an article in the Today's Catholic, and it talked about all of this. And one of the things I thought that was interesting in there was that the money that is being invested, so these these funds are being invested and the interest is being accrued. So they're being intelligently invested, but also they're very specific about uh, investing in companies that are in line with Catholic teaching, and they would never be investing in companies that go against Catholic teaching, which I think is is important not only for this Catholic foundation, but also for all of us to be considering where we're investing our monies and what's that, what that is supporting in the process. You know, that is important. I mean, even with our, our regular diocesan funds, we're careful about uh, with whom we invest. Mm-hmm. You know, we follow the USCCB guidelines on this, of, and we call it socially responsible investment. So we don't want to in, invest in a, for example, mutual funds where maybe some of the the businesses would be involved in things that are contrary to our faith. Mm-hmm. Well, again, if people want to call the diocese, look it up on the website uh, for anybody that's looking to donate to this or, or, or put this in their will or something like that, or I suppose also organizations that think they might qualify for being recipients of this, they should contact him and check into that. All right. Well, coming up, we are going to talk about the right of Christian initiation of adults, also known as RCIA. And also the Light is On For You event that's happening around the diocese. And we'll have questions that were submitted by you right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman. And one of the things that we want to talk about today is the right of Christian initiation for adults, also known as RCIA. This happens throughout the year, and the culmination of all of the preparation for those that are entering the church happens uh, right, really during this time of Lent and leading up to Easter. Can you explain what the right of Christian initiation of adults is? Yes, uh, 
as you said, popularly called RCIA. We also have RCIC, which is for children who are preparing for their initiation into mm-hmm. the church. And of course, the three sacraments of initiation are baptism, confirmation, and Holy Eucharist. Technically, the RCIA is for the unbaptized. It's a preparation for baptism, as okay. well as confirmation, Holy Eucharist. However, we have people who go to RCIA classes who are already baptized, but not in Catholic churches. So oftentimes, they are also included in the classes, but they're not preparing for baptism. They're already baptized. They're uh-huh. preparing for entrance into full communion with the Catholic Church, which then is also preparing for their first Holy Communion and their confirmation. Mm-hmm. Um, but strictly speaking, the RCIA is for the unbaptized. And, you know, the beginning they are called catechumens, catechumens. And there's a, a little ceremony at the beginning of the process after they've discerned that they that uh, God is calling them to uh, to baptism and they, they're, they're beginning to have faith, they will become catechumens. And, and that will take place many months of catechesis and preparation and prayer all the way up until Lent, the Lent before the Easter Vigil. Mm-hmm. And then they come to the time of more intense preparation. And that begins with what's called the rite of election. I guess you could call it the second step in Christian initiation. Okay, they've, they be, the first step is becoming catechumens. The second step is a liturgical rite that we call the rite of election. has another name, also the enrollment of names. Okay. And this really closes the catechumenate period and begins a new period of more immediate preparation to receive the sacraments of initiation at Easter. So it's a really important time. And I celebrate the rite of election in both cathedrals, in Fort Wayne and South Bend, usually around the first Sunday of Lent. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I celebrate the rite of election at St. Matthew's Cathedral in South Bend on February 11th, and I celebrate the rite of election at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in Fort Wayne on February 18th. Mm -hmm. And it's just wonderful because it gives me an opportunity to meet all of these people preparing to be baptized and to become Catholic. Some people say, well, what what does it mean, election? Are they getting elected? And (laughs) uh, the word election really means chosen. Uh, And basically, it's referring to being chosen by God. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's really the acceptance that's made by the church, which is based on the election by God, mm-hmm. and the church acts in the, in the Lord's name. And the unbaptized are, during the ceremony, their names go into a book. So that's why it's also called enrollment of, of names. And I receive these books and I sign them. Basically, it means they're chosen. These are men, women, and children who are chosen for initiation. So it's a, it's a really special event, and, and I always enjoy it. And from the day of their election, the catechumens then are called, they're not called catechumens anymore, they're called the elect. So they enter into the Lenten season as their immediate preparation for their initiation. And 
they're encouraged during that time to really make it a, a really more intense time of spiritual preparation. And we call the time, which usually coincides with the season of Lent, the period of purification and enlightenment. Hmm. So all through Lent, we see how they are led to this repentance, to be prepared to receive the sacraments of initiation, and the community, the parish, accompanies these people with their prayers. So there's more interior reflection that goes on uh -huh. during this period of purification and enlightenment. They've already had a lot of instruction in the faith, but now it's time to kind of even go deeper, to be purified in mind and heart, and to be enlightened by Christ. So there's different ceremonies during the season of Lent, during this period of purification and enlightenment that lead up to the Easter Vigil. So for somebody that is interested in learning more about Catholicism or wants to become Catholic, wants to join the church, would you suggest that they reach out to the parish RCIA director or is there something maybe first talk to a priest or what would you recommend for that path? I, I would say that either way, okay. you know, they could talk to any priest. They can also reach out to the parish's RCIA director because hopefully, you know, in the summer or early fall, they would, if they're interested, they would begin the RCIA process. Yeah, when does that begin? Usually, I mean, it depends on the parish, but I think inquiries usually take place during the summer and usually very early in the fall, the classes would begin. And why such an elaborate process? Why can't we just let somebody just come <laughs> in the church and start receiving communion? Well, because it is really important that one have the knowledge of the faith that mm -hmm. they are intending to embrace. Also, I know a lot of times our RCIA programs are looking for volunteers uh, to be part of the team, sometimes sponsors and things like that. Uh, if somebody's looking to get involved with that, would, is that something you would recommend? Oh, yeah, volunteer. I'm sure a lot of parishes would be grateful because it's, it's important that the people be accompanied in this journey, especially by the sponsors. You know, the sponsors have that role of really accompanying the the person they're sponsoring, spiritually accompanying them, and also helping them when they have questions or, mm -hmm. or whatever, and, and then to pray for the person they're sponsoring. And I haven't personally done it, but I've known several people that have that said they learned so much about their faith by going through that program that they were so grateful to have gone to the classes, even though they were already Catholic. Yeah, I hear that too. And I think a lot of parishes have the RCIA open to yeah. Catholics who just want to get uh, more firmly grounded in their faith. A free education. Right, right. <laughs> Don't have to pay for credits for that one. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I was kind of curious to get your thoughts on is the idea of constant conversion that we're all called to. So this is kind of a big conversion that people are joining the church or completing their sacraments that they started maybe long ago. Uh, but what does this remind us about our own need for conversion through our lives? You know, it's that's why we have the season of Lent, uh, mm -hmm. which reminds us that we all need ongoing conversion and uh, ongoing repentance. So that's why we have the Lenten practices that we have. 
you know, when we fast or we make sacrifices and almsgiving and prayer, it's meant to have that interior renewal that we all need. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we focus on the externals, sometimes the external penances we do, but we should think of, well, what is the point? Well, the point is, in, is to help us in that process of interior conversion, of turning back to the Lord, drawing closer to Christ. And that's really a lifelong journey. Kind of along those lines, our Catholic word of the week is a word that I've heard tossed around every once in a while with retreats and RCIA and stuff. I don't fully understand what it means, I don't think, so hopefully you can help us out here. The word is mystagogy. Where does that come from, or what does that mean? Mystagogy. Okay, Kyle. Well, you know what? I think it has to do with mystery. So, hmm. mystagogy is coming into a deeper, fuller understanding of the mysteries of our faith. So, after someone is initiated into the church at the Easter Vigil, the church has a third step, and that is what you mentioned, mystagogy, or in Greek, it's mystagogia. Okay. And that's really the final period. It's post-baptismal catechesis. So, it's a time where the newly baptized the neophytes, they're called, and the community together grow in deepening their understanding of the mysteries of our faith. Since they're newly initiated, they can receive the Holy Eucharist, mm -hmm. but then it's kind of like the beginning of really living the Christian life. So rather than just receive the sacraments of initiation, Easter Vigil, then left alone, the church continues to accompany them yeah. in this period of mystagogy. And, uh, when you think about it, our whole lives are kind of a mystagogy because right. you know, we continue to ponder the mysteries of our faith and grow in our understanding with the help of the Holy Spirit. But these weeks of post-baptismal catechesis for those who are just initiated are really a good time to kind of help them in those first months of living the Christian life. And I'll mention also there was an article in the Today's Catholic called Right of Election and Call to Continuing Conversion that kind of talks about this. People can check that out. It was in the February 11th issue, and it was posted on the website on uh, February 6th. Uh, but also another thing that I wanted to talk about that's happening this Lent, and it's it's been an annual event for a little while at least, is The Light is On for You. What is the goal of that campaign? Yeah, we've been doing this for several years, and it began in the Archdiocese of Washington, and I thought it was such a wonderful thing that I initiated it here in our diocese. And it basically is to have every Catholic church of the diocese open for this two-hour period on a particular evening in Lent that people can go to confession. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great idea, and we try to publicize it. So... It will be February 28th from 6 to 8 p.m. So what's been remarkable, and this is, was my hope, is that maybe by advertising this, all the, all the churches are open if you want to go to confession, that we've gotten a lot of people who haven't been to confession for many, many years mm -hmm. who've come back. And that was my hope. That was the purpose. And so now we're doing it every year, basically. Yeah. So if you know somebody, if some of our listeners perhaps haven't been to confession in a while, or if there's uh, 
maybe you know people who haven't been, you could suggest, you know, you can go to any church you want tonight. Yeah. They're having confessions, February 28th, 6 to 8 p.m. And it's called, this li- the light is on for you, because, uh-huh. you know, the confessional light is, right. is the idea. Yeah. And there's more information about that at org slash light. And are Catholics obligated to go to confession during Lent? Anyone is obligated to go to confession if they've committed a mortal sin. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's strongly encouraged because it is a season of repentance. So it's especially appropriate time to receive the grace of the sacrament of penance to help one in their uh, journey to Easter. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Coming up, we'll ask questions that were submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking questions that you've submitted for the bishop to answer. And our first question is actually one that I also had, but uh, Dave from St. John's in Fort Wayne beat me to it. He said, when the Pope comes to visit your cathedral, can he or any other bishop sit in your chair? This is going back to (laughs) a previous conversation. You were talking about how uh, if we were getting a tour of the cathedral or even a visiting priest shouldn't sit in the bishop's chair. Right, right. That's a good question. Thanks, Dave. Just to remind our listeners, the bishop's chair, the word is cathedra, uh-huh. and that's where we get the word cathedral. The cathedral church is the church that is the site of the bishop's cathedra, the bishop's chair. And it's really a sign of the teaching office of the bishop, as well as his pastoral office in, in the diocese. And it's true, only the diocesan bishop or only the bishop sits in the cathedra. However, the Pope, because he's really the uh, successor of St. Peter and it has jurisdiction over the entire church, he can always sit in the any bishop's cathedra uh, okay. the Pope can sit in. Now, as far as other bishops, mm-hmm. another bishop who was, let's say, visiting, I would have to give him permission okay. to use it during Mass, to sit in the chair during Mass. And of course, I readily give that to a Uh brother bishop. Have you ever sat in another bishop's chair? I have, Celebrating Mass? Yes. So I I don't know if there's any bishops who don't allow visiting bishops, but a few places where I've celebrated Mass in a cathedral and in other dioceses, the bishops always said, oh yes, please please use my cathedra. Okay. Yeah. So it's... It's for bishop and for the specific bishop of the diocese. He can authorize another bishop, but he couldn't authorize a priest. Correct. Okay. Correct. Well, good. That clears that up. Uh, Steve Birkins from St. Dominic in Bremen said, is it true that bishops must be descendants of the 12 apostles? And if so, which apostle are you a descendant? Oh, it's interesting. It gets into a really important topic of apostolic succession. Uh-huh. And yes, bishops are successors of the apostles. Now, I noticed Steve mentioned uh, the 12 apostles, but but keep in mind, there's also St. Paul, who was an apostle, but he wasn't one of the 12. So, mm-hmm. apostle is a little broader than the 12. So, 
Yes, we are successors of the apostles. We know that by the end of the, the first century, there were bishops in the local communities, the local churches. The first bishops, of course, were, were the twelve, and then really the second group of apostles would be like St. Paul and St. Barnabas. And really, Paul was commissioned directly as an apostle by the risen Jesus, uh-huh. though he wasn't a disciple of Jesus during his earthly ministry. In any event, they chose other men to succeed them mm-hmm. who inherited their authority. So the first bishops of the church after the apostles, we, you know, we have historical evidence of them. They were the shepherds. So there is an unbroken line of ordination. But we don't have, because they didn't keep historical records like we do today, where we can trace back, right. you know, that far. Now, my ancestry, you could say, uh-huh. goes back, I can trace it back to like the 16th century, 1500s. Okay. And mine goes back through Pope John Paul II, by the way, because mm-hmm. the, the bishop who ordained me was ordained by John Paul II. So... I go through that line, but we aren't able to, we don't have the documentation to actually trace it back to the original apostles, um, just because they didn't keep those historical records. Yeah. Yeah. But from now on, we would have those records from... Right. I think most most bishops, from my understanding, can get back to the 15th or 16th century. Someone did that for me, my Episcopal lineage, and I have it in a file somewhere. That might be interesting. I have to dig that out and and, and let you know how, how far back you know we can figure it out. Is apostolic succession, is that necessary? Is it, would there be another way that uh, the, the priesthood and the, the bishops could be passed on? Or is it necessary that this is, goes all the way back? Yeah, we believe it's through ordination that it has a, that it really goes back to Christ himself. So, no, I mean, it goes through that. I mean, you can't be a part of apostolic succession unless that is there. So, obviously, at Catholic bishops, we have apostolic succession. Mm-hmm. So do Orthodox bishops, okay. you know. So, that's interesting. That's why we recognize the validity of sacraments of the Orthodox churches because they have legitimate apostolic succession. One form of apostolic succession that we do have good records on is the the papal succession, right? Right. The popes that we can trace all the way back from Pope Francis all the way back to St. Peter. We do. We have the list. Which I've always, that was Probably the thing that had the most impact on me is the first time I saw that list, I was 18 years old, and I saw I just started looking at the numbers, and I was noticing all the years where it counted for, and we had Pope after Pope after Pope, and I said, wait a minute, this goes all the way back. Several years ago, Kyle, I was doing a school visit to Queen of Peace School in Mishawaka, and one of the students, they said, oh, we have one of the students, I forget what grade he was in maybe seventh or eighth, and they said, uh, Bishop, we want, uh, he has something to share with you. Uh And I said, oh, sure. So this boy recited all the names of the whatever 264, 265 popes in order. Wow. 
and he had it like a jingle, you know, like how he was able to memorize <laughs> yeah, you'd it. Yeah, have to. And I was like, oh my goodness, I never met anyone who could name all the, 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 the popes in the history of the church, starting with Peter. Yeah, that's impressive. I guess you, you do get a little bit of a pass once you start getting into the ones that are named the same, just to change the number. Exactly. I guess yeah. you could say one through eight or <laughs> skip a few. All right. Well, if you have any questions, feel free to submit those. You can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we've got more of your questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. One of our listeners asked, if you need to be in a state of grace to go to heaven when you die, and we all need confession to be in a state of grace, how do non-Catholics go to heaven since they don't believe in confession? I don't doubt that they go to heaven, but I'm curious. That's an interesting question. The caller is correct that... uh, in order to go to heaven, the church teaches that we have to die in a state of sanctifying grace. Now, the question about whether a non-Catholic can be in that condition, the Catholic Church says yes. I mean, a person who's authentically repentant of his or her sins can be in the state of grace. And one say, well, why is it then important to go to confession? because it's one of the seven sacraments in which we receive grace. Mm-hmm. So if a person you know, has the proper disposition when they go to confession, they're assured of the forgiveness of their sins. So someone who isn't Catholic, it can be more difficult because, and I know, for example, some Protestants who kind of feel nervous about their state in this sense because whether they have that perfect contrition see the the advantage of the sacrament of confession is that um an imperfect contrition is sufficient you know an imperfect contrition for example is being sorry for your sins out of fear of punishment and that's enough in order to be forgiven in the sacrament of confession but we don't believe that's sufficient outside the sacrament for forgiveness outside the sacrament you would need what we call perfect contrition which is sorrow for one's sins because they've offended god you know basically sorrow not just motivated by fear but by the love of god so hopefully that helps one to understand of course only god knows the state of a person's soul we can't uh determine that you know god god knows the state of our souls Mm -hmm. but he's given us this sacrament this sacrament of penance or reconciliation a gift to the church for the forgiveness of our sins and for the restoration of that grace that can be lost by mortal sin is some of this kind of uh to whom much is given, much is expected. So since as Catholics, we are aware of confession, so we need to take advantage of that. But for those that that don't understand that and the grace that comes from it, maybe Jesus would have more mercy on them. Is that kind of? Yeah, I mean, some of this gets in the area of speculation, but I think you're on the right track there. I think we do have a great responsibility for the gifts that we've received in our uh, through the Catholic Church, not only the complete 
Christian truth without errors, but we have the seven sacraments, these mm -hmm. ordinary sources of grace that Christ has given us. So I think because of these gifts that we have, both in teaching as well as the sacraments, that puts us in a position where, as you said, to whom much is given, much is expected. All right. Our next question comes from Mike Wonker from St. Elizabeth Ann Seat in Fort Wayne. He said, many years ago, the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese had an auxiliary bishop to assist. Who determines that a diocese needs an auxiliary bishop? And maybe if I could add to Mike's question, could you clarify the difference between a bishop and an auxiliary bishop? The diocesan bishop is the, the, the one who has the full authority in the local church in the diocese. An auxiliary bishop would be one who would help the diocesan bishop. So he would be a bishop, so he receives the grace of Episcopal ordination, but he would serve under the diocesan bishop. Okay. So the diocesan bishop would decide what duties that he would entrust to the auxiliary bishop. The Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend had different auxiliary bishops for a number of years, and probably because of the the split, you know, Fort Wayne, South Bend. I think usually the auxiliary bishop served more in the South Bend side of the diocese. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure that was a great help <laughs> to the diocese yeah. bishop. But then the Vatican started to say that they didn't want unnecessary multiplication of auxiliary bishops. Okay. And it became, therefore, a bishop who, they were saying, how's one, who determines it? Well, the Dawson bishop would request of the Pope an auxiliary and would write and give all the reasons why he needs an auxiliary bishop. But from my understanding, that was, as I said, some years ago, they were not real keen on having too many. It, you really had to have a serious need. Hmm. I don't know. I've never asked for an auxiliary bishop, but... The size of our diocese is such that I don't think we would qualify now. I don't think they would say that they would say, oh, your diocese isn't big enough, really. I think they might say okay. to have an auxiliary bishop. And that would go, be based on population, not necessarily square footage or mileage. Right. I think population would be, I mean, if it was a huge diocese, maybe that would have an effect. But really, even geographically, ours isn't that large. Okay. Our final question today is... How can lay people become more familiar with doctrine? Are there resources you recommend for people who are not theologians, but want to know more about church teaching? There are a lot of good resources out there. I'm glad to receive that question because ongoing study of the faith, I think, is important for every Catholic. Mm -hmm. Of course, the number one resource is the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So that would be the first thing I would recommend. Mm -hmm. Also, there's the U.S. Catechism for Adults that if, if one finds the universal catechism maybe a little too difficult, the U.S. catechism for adults is, uh, I'd say, easier reading. But I'd always recommend the universal catechism first. Uh -huh. And then there are also a lot of other books uh, that touch on different areas of doctrine. It would depend on what the person wants to delve into. Maybe they it might be something in the area of morality, or maybe they want to delve into some particular mystery of the faith, maybe the, the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus, or mm -hmm. 
the the doctrine on the incarnation so it really depend you know but there's just so many good good books out there that i would recommend and but if they want a really comprehensive view of the totality of the church the catechism is number one any books come to mind as some of your favorites or that have really helped you to understand things well you know I love the writings of Pope Benedict. Yeah. And, well, he was Cardinal Ratzinger. Introduction to Christianity is a favorite of mine. I would say his three volumes entitled Jesus of Nazareth, mm-hmm. and he wrote that as Pope. That's tremendous. I love those those three books. I also think um, oh, there's so many good things I would I would recommend, but I definitely, you know, feel that Pope Benedict is is his writings are really, really good. All right. Well, thank you so much again, Bishop, for joining us today and and sharing all this with us. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Come. Tune in next Wednesday at noon for an all-new episode of Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. The focus will be on parables as Bishop will explain how and why they are a useful teaching tool. Bishop will also offer his reflections on one of the most well-known parables in the Bible, the parable of the prodigal son. Then it will be on to the importance of reaching out to others, including those who have left the church and those from other faith traditions. Bishop Rhodes will discuss how building bridges with others can bring fruits for our society. The show will wrap up with Bishop answering questions from listeners. If you have a question for a future show, you can submit it by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. And while you're there, you can also listen to past episodes or download the Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and select Audio Library. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.